Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. It's being called gray divorce. It's the phenomena of older couples who've been married for decades getting a divorce. According to the New York Times article I read, in 2014, people age 50 and above were twice as likely to go through divorce than in 1990. That's according to the National Center for Family and Marriage Research at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. For those over 65, the increase was even higher. At the same time, divorce rates have plateaued or dropped among other age groups. We can leave it to the sociologists to suggest all the various reasons why familiar couples divorce. One thing is certain, they have fallen out of love with one another. Love is an incredibly important characteristic of biblical Christianity. God is love, and he so loved the world of mankind that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. We are individually drawn by Jesus, uh, to Jesus rather, by his everlasting love. Robert Gromacki writes, and he says, When a sinner believes unto salvation, the love of God is shed in his or her heart by the initial infilling and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> he or she not only loves God, but also loves the children of God in whom the same Savior abides. He or she is taught by God to love his or her brothers and sisters, and this fact alone gives an assurance of personal salvation. Then Gromacki adds this, he says, This implanted seed of love, however, must grow, must be cultivated and manifested daily. It must not be limited or contained. Our love for the Lord can go gray in a sense. We don't divorce him, but we can leave our first love for him and for his children, uh, as Jesus uh, warned the church in Ephesus when he wrote to them in the book of the Revelation. Now, Paul prayed for the Philippians that their love, this love that we're talking about that's been shed abroad in their hearts, that it would abound. And he says in verses 9 through 11, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be uh, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as you know, if you've been here, we're looking at some of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. We're taking them in chronological order. This is the second prayer of his that we find in his letter to the Philippians. And so again, let's take verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more uh, with knowledge and discernment. He's talking about God's supernatural love, of course, that's shed in our hearts by him. If you got saved later in life, you probably had a profound rush of Holy Spirit love shed in your heart. Uh, it, it was something really uh, noticeable, really memorable, really fantastic. Do you remember that scene in It's a Wonderful Life when George realizes he has a second chance? He runs through town shouting, Hello, Bedford Falls! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building alone! Hey, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Everybody thinks he's crazy. He's just so exuberant. He's so filled with joy that he's been given this second chance. You feel like that when you get saved only a million times more. You love everybody. Everybody's your friend. You forgive everybody. It's like life is brand new. Fast forward a few decades of walking with Jesus and a lot of believers become the church curmudgeon. Who happens to be a real character, by the way. He began tweeting on November 19th in 2010. 
He has over 70,000 followers. It's mostly harmless poking fun at Christians and how curmudgeonly we can be. But a lot of believers really are like that. They're bad-tempered and surly, and they get worse as they age. Uh, they're not even like fine wine. I mean, it just they just get the sour the, the longer they walk with the Lord. Paul wanted love to abound, or we could say overflow. Remember Steppenwolf saying, get your motor running. In our case, we need to get our love flowing. That's the whole idea. Got to get our love flowing each day. It should flow overflowing between the banks of knowledge on the one hand and discernment on the other. Those are the two things Paul mentions. The knowledge Paul had in mind, of course, is knowledge of God's truth and his will gained from his word. In Colossians, we're told to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If you stop and think about it, you and I know an awful lot because God has revealed an awful lot to us. We know, for example, that folks are headed to hell unless they believe in Jesus Christ. And that knowledge directs our love to overflow by telling them about the Lord or by at least supporting ministers and ministries that preach the gospel. And so... Um, that knowledge, that, that key knowledge that you didn't have before you were saved, that hell was real and that people were going to go there if they didn't have their sins forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross, that love wells up in your heart and you want to see people saved. We don't always share with everybody. We kick ourselves for not doing that. We all want to be better evangelists, but you, you nevertheless have that sense of urgency in your heart and that love for others and it overflows to them. We know believers are perfected day by day, transformed into the image of Jesus. That knowledge directs our love to overflow by telling them to press forward, to serve, to endure suffering, to not lose heart. It directs us to have fellowship with others, serving and being served in the household of faith. And so our, our love, which is to overflow, is directed by this knowledge that we get by spending time with the Lord, especially in his word telling us what to think, how to think, uh, and how to implement those thoughts. The greatest knowledge we are exposed to is, of course, the person and work of Jesus himself. By him, God has revealed to us God who is love. As we follow Jesus in his ministry and hear his words, we're seeing love incarnate. We're, we're seeing what it means to love one another and to love others. But we also need discernment. Now, what did Paul mean? He said we need knowledge and discernment. That's the other bank that is directing this flow and this overflow. And I think he tells us what he means in verse 10 when he says, mentions discernment in verse 9, then he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, there might be a slight inference here that our love can get too lax. In the name of love, we can begin to accept all manner of compromise especially as the surrounding culture continues to deteriorate. And so Paul is saying that we need discernment to approve what is excellent, uh, not the things that fall short of excellence, and keep ourselves pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So he, I think he's recognizing the culture war that every generation of Christians has. They had it in Corinth. Uh, they had it in Philippi. They had it all over the you know, areas of Turkey where Paul ministered. They have it today, and, and the culture comes in. It's one of the ways Satan works. He desensitizes us. He wears us down. Uh, most of us would probably admit in a moment of uh, honesty that 
we're desensitized to things that we used to think were heinous, terrible sins, and now we, they're almost commonplace to us. And that's, a, that's in many ways a sad thing. Uh, that was certainly the case in Corinth in terms of being influenced by the surrounding culture. That church was compromising with the world in terrible ways. It wasn't love. Whatever they were doing, it wasn't love. They were, for example, tolerating a couple in the church where the young man was uh, living in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And he thought they, they thought that they were really loving and showing great grace by having them in the church and welcoming them as uh, members of the church. And Paul had to correct that. They were suing one another openly in court. Saturday night or Sunday, whenever Sunday night, whenever they met, they were speaking in tongues and interpreting each other's tongues and all praising the Lord, getting ready for the lawsuit on Monday that they were uh, dragging each other to court. And they, it went on and on with divisions and all of that, but they were, they were acting like the world. Probably sooner than later, every Christian is going to have to decide whether or not you're going to attend a same-sex wedding. It might be a family member, might be a friend, might be a colleague. Some of you have already confronted this and you made a decision one way or the other. Don't think of my comments as judging you one way or the other. It's not an easy decision. I recognize that. But it's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. We love, we have an overflowing love. It's a love that's evangelical. How is that love to be directed between knowledge and discernment? I bring it up here because the overriding argument people use to say that you not only can, but you should attend those ceremonies is that it reveals the love of God. Contrarywise, to refuse, even politely, is seen to be unloving. Well, let me say that our church and all churches should welcome anyone and everyone to attend regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, or sexual orientation. For too long, for example, homosexuality was held up in churches as an almost unpardonable sin. Believers who were themselves involved in sexual sins like pornography and fornication and adultery condemned not just homosexuality, but in many cases the people themselves. It was a terrible hypocrisy. The church went through a period of time, and many churches are still there, where homosexuality is, is, is anathema. It's, it's, it, you know, now, it's a sin, don't get me wrong, but in terms of how we deal with it. And so you've got a, you know, you've got a, a guy that is, is com he's got multiple women that he's committing adultery with, but if you mention that someone's a homosexual, he wants to just kill the guy or the gal, as the case may be. It's a hypocrisy. And so we, the church is a place that welcomes people so that what? They will be changed. That they will understand God's word and, and be filled with the spirit and, and become that which God intended them to be. We hold to the clear teaching of God's word. In the case of sexual orientation, we stand with the word of God on traditional marriage between one biological man and one biological woman for as long as they both shall live. There's no danger here at Calvary Hanford that we're going to engage in marrying same-sex couples um, or anything like that. I mean, we, we stand on the word of God. So should I or shouldn't I attend a same-sex ceremony? Well, for me, the answer is no. I believe that my attendance can only give an approval to the union. Now, true, if I refuse, it may seem unloving. I admit it's difficult to see how not going to the ceremony demonstrates love and care for the persons. But in this case, I know it's not unloving, so I can't be held hostage by that accusation. 
People do this all the time. They're mad at you or they're upset with you or they disagree with you. And and what do they always say? Oh, I thought you were a Christian. Yeah, okay, so what does that have to do with it? I remember one time years ago before I was in the ministry, I was a sales manager and I fired this gal. I thought you were a Christian. I am a Christian and to be a good boss, I have to fire you because you're lame. I mean, you know, I didn't put it quite that... Well, actually, I might have said it worse. No, I didn't. But, but you know, I, what does that have to do? Of course I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, and, and I'm firing you because you didn't. You had plenty of warnings, and, you know, you can't hold me hostage by that. And, and so, you know, oh, you have to come to this ceremony because you're a Christian, and, you know, you, you overflow with love. Well, there's also discernment. In this case, I know it's not unloving, so I can't be held hostage by that accusation. So you're free to disagree with me so long as you're exercising your own discernment. I won't argue with you. These are tough issues, I understand. Uh, You know, what's clear to one person is unclear to another. I mean, there's biblical arguments on both sides, obviously. But, um, you know, and people say, well... You attend the marriage of two non-believers. What's the difference? Well, it's, it's a marriage between two non-believers who are getting married the way God said people ought to get married in society. It's not the same. And you, you can't celebrate something without celebrating it, if you understand what I mean. You can't go to a... This is me just speaking now, but I don't see how I can go to a wedding that's a celebration of this union... And, and not be celebrating that it's a union that God doesn't approve of. God doesn't disapprove of non-believers getting married. You can't find that in the scripture. God doesn't say, avoid all non-believer marriage. Marriage is actually a good thing for society, whether you're a believer or not a believer. I don't marry believers and non-believers because they're unequally yoked. But to, to a non-believing couple ought to get married. Uh, but when you get into the same-sex situation, very different. It's a, it's, it's a totally different situation. The, the only argument I've heard that makes a little bit of sense is, is that it, you know, it's no different than you know, non-believers getting married, but, but it really is. So anyway, that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. Now, this isn't a full-blown teaching on the subject of same-sex unions. I meant for it to be an example of overflowing love needing to be guided by discernment. I had to go into a little bit of detail because it's a controversial subject, but when you have love, you know, Paul says, man, let that love just flow through your heart, just flow out of your heart. And then a situation comes up and you say, well, I also have to have discernment. And again, you're free to disagree with me and have your own biblical arguments, and that's fine. This isn't a hill I'm going to die on. Uh, in, in terms of whether somebody goes to such and such a ceremony or not. I know what I need to do at this point. Now, notice Paul does say that you approve what is excellent. So, he, God, the Holy Spirit, has given us a love that approves what is excellent. If I do something and say it's because of God's love, I need to be able to show how it approved what he says is excellent. What I do and say and don't do and say can show approval or disapproval. Sometimes disapproval is the more loving choice in the long run. Discernment directs my love so that I remain pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If it weren't for discernment, I might rush into a lot of strange situations, thinking I was sharing the love of Jesus when in fact I was being soiled by the world. How many times have people said to you, well, Jesus was always hanging around sinners? 
Well, he was, but he was Jesus. And he was never touched by their sin. And he was always transforming those situations. So for those of us who are hanging around sinners and sinners are being transformed by our hanging around them uh, and we are being untouched by their sin, that's, that's fantastic, Jesus' ministry. But too often that's not the case. It's just, well, Jesus was around sinners and I, I like being around sinners. And so I'm, you know, I, I never share with them. I never tell them anything about Jesus. I just figure by some osmosis they'll figure it out. And so we, we just want to be, you know, careful how we uh, apply these things. I need to remain pure and blameless for the day of Christ and think about what I'm doing. Verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You are declared righteous by God when you believe in Jesus Christ. And then as you walk with him, you're able to bring forth fruit, spiritual fruit that springs from your salvation. You know, non-believers can do a lot of good things. They can produce a lot of good works. But they can't bring forth any spiritual fruit. You can only bring forth fruit if you're abiding in Jesus as the vine. You're the branches, he's the vine. And until you know him, there's no such thing as spiritual fruit in your life. It doesn't matter how religious people are or how much good they do or how much better they seem than the average Christian. None of it is spiritual fruit that will last and that is important. Don't think, however, that you produce fruit from great discipline or preparation or any such thing. It comes through Jesus Christ, Paul reminds us. He's the vine, we're the branches. Fruit is the natural result of abiding in the Lord. Ultimately, everything God has intended for us and that he will complete in us is to his glory and praise. Amen?